over right there on, in the picture. So. All right. Well, joining us right now is the author of the book, Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. Cesar Brioso is our guest. Cesar, thank you for taking some time to discuss your book. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. And my co-host is Craig Heiss, by the way. Uh, who worked for a number of years for Radio Marti, part of the Voice of America. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm not trying to be funny to start something off, but I remember, do you remember the movie Bingo Long and the Traveling uh, Motor King All-Stars? Sure, I remember it. It's been years since I've seen it. There was a a scene, it it kept recurring, where Richard Pryor's character on this bandwagon uh, African-American team, Negro League players, they were traveling around, and he imitated being Latin. It, apparently, the, the inside joke was that if you were Latin, uh, you, you had a chance to play in the big leagues before Negroes. Do you know if that was true or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've heard, uh, I've read stories about uh, some of the, uh, I guess, like the Cuban ex-giants uh, and uh, maybe even the Indianapolis clowns sort of pretending to, to speak uh, Spanish, so because it was more acceptable right. uh, for uh, white American audiences, fans, uh, for, uh, to see them in games. Uh, but sure, I mean, uh, you know, the the divide in terms of even Cuban players coming here to the majors, the the ones that made it, that were able to play here before the breaking of the color barrier, were either white Cubans or. Uh, Cubans that maybe had uh, uh, mixed, ra- uh, mixed mixed race, race yeah. or distance, uh, distant African uh, descent, so uh, they had lighter skin. Uh, you know, and like when uh, in 1911, when the Reds signed a couple of Cuban players, uh, you know, I found plenty of instances where sports writers sort of rushed to uh, assure white uh, baseball fans that uh, that those two players, Armando Marsans and uh, Rafael Almeida were indeed white, uh, and 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 not that that they didn't have quote any ignoble African blood, and uh, mm-hmm. one quote was described them as the two purest bars of Castilian soap <laughs> ever floated to these shores. So, yeah. sure, uh, the, uh, you know it would it was an advantage uh, to to be Cuban. Uh, potentially in terms of uh, being able to reach the, the majors in the first half of the 20th century. Now, I never lie to my audience. I got the book about eight or nine days ago. I, my schedule was tough, and I've read about 15 to 20 pages of it. I find it very interesting, though. But one of the first things that pop out at me is the name Bobby Maduro because the Baltimore Orioles played in Miami at in spring training for 25, 30 years at Bobby Maduro's stadium uh, tell us a little bit about Bobby Maduro's history, because he was right in this book quite often in the early parts of it. Yeah, he's a he's a major player uh, in, in in Cuban baseball. He's a Cuban entrepreneur. He and uh, Miguel Suarez built uh, El Gran Stadium in Havana in 1946, uh, which became uh, that season became the home to the Cuban League for all four teams: Alana, uh, Almendares, Cienfuegos, and Marianao. Uh, and he eventually. Uh, owned uh, the Cienfuegos team uh, for several years, mm-hmm. and then bought the uh, the uh, Havana Cubans of the uh, Havana of the excuse me of the Florida International League, and then moved that team to Triple A as the Havana Sugar Kings in 1954. Um, and then you know he so he. Uh, the Sugar Kings uh, being in AAA, like, uh, you know, his goal with the stadium and the Sugar Kings was to hopefully eventually bring an expansion team to Havana. The team's motto was, un paso más y llegamos, one more step and we get there. And that wasn't just an allusion mm-hmm. to the players being a step from Major League Baseball, but his goal to 
potentially bring a, a major league expansion team to Cuba. What was the baseball like in Cuba pre-revolution? I mean, that seemed to be the golden age for it uh, with the players and things like that. And I, as I was telling Stan earlier, I, I think we know what kind of players – played down there because of the success the Cuban baseball teams had throughout all international competition, mm -hmm. but specifically that period before 1959. Yeah, I mean, for the, for the, the whole first half of the, the 20th century, uh, there was this back-and-forth exchange of players between Cuba and the United States. Uh, Cuban players, uh, white major leaguers, Negro leaguers, uh, you know, Negro league teams had been coming uh, to barnstorm in Cuba uh, since 1900. Individual Negro League players uh, came to play on the, the, the various uh, Cuban League teams. Uh, American, uh, white American players came down into Cuba as well, and obviously some, uh, some Cubans uh, you know, uh, came to the majors. Uh, that really started to increase sort of in the 30s and 40s, um, especially as, as Joe Cambria started signing up players for the, for the uh, Senators. But you know, I, what the way it was described to me, that the, the, the Cuban League was uh, sort of somewhere between AAA and the majors. Uh, and you get guys uh, who end up uh, eventually with Hall of Fame careers, either as players or managers. But, uh, you know, Monty Irvin, uh, Ray Dandridge uh, played, played in Cuba, uh, Tom Lasorda, uh, Don Zimmer, Bill Verdon, uh, Dick Williams, uh, uh, Hoyt Wilhelm, you know, guys who went on to uh, uh, very good major league careers. Uh, uh, so you had good players there. You had the, obviously the Cuban the, the Cuban players were very talented, especially you know in in the 40s and 50s. You're, you're talking at that point about uh, Manny Minoso, mm -hmm. um, Camilo Pasquale, uh, yeah. Pedro, Pedro Ramos. Ramos, and even Louis Tion played the final yeah. year of the, the uh, of the uh, of the Cuban league. The the time of the year that Cuban baseball was was really percolating was that during the off season of Major League Baseball. Or did they play all year round in Cuba, professionally? Well, for the for the Cuban league itself, it was just a winter league. It okay. played from you know October to into February, uh, and that was traditionally the time frame for for the Cuban league uh, since its existence, uh, since it was first formed in uh, 1878, just a couple of years after the formation of the National League here. Uh, but they did play uh, minor league ball there, starting in '46 uh, with the Havana Cubans. That was a summer league in the, in the Florida International League, like I said, and then uh, eventually in the International League uh, in 54. And, and how many years did they, the Havana Sugar Kings play in the um, International League? Uh, from 54 until 1960. Uh, and in 1960, uh, with all the, the tensions escalating between Cuba and the United States right. uh, and concerns for player safety among uh, uh, the International League uh, and organized baseball, uh, right in the middle of the season, as the Sugar Kings were on a long road trip, uh, Frank Shaughnessy, the president of the International League, finally decided to, to pull the plug and, and mm -hmm. uh, ordered that the team be relocated to Jersey City. Uh, and the move happened uh, so fast that uh, when they debuted in Jersey City, they still had their uh, Sugar Kings uniform. Wow. They said in, in red script, Guanos across the chest. <laughs> but what they did was uh, sew a patch on over that, uh, that, that red Jersey City. Uh, they did manage to get the hats that's with a JC on it for for their debut, but uh, they didn't even have uh, uniforms for the new town that they would be playing in. Uh, when did they, when did they, they have a move. 
Did they have a nickname when they moved to Jersey City, or were they just called Jersey City for that first season? It was the Jersey City Jerseys. Uh, okay. They, uh, are, it was since they were affiliated with the Reds. It was going to be uh, originally they were talking about just calling them the Jersey City Reds. Right. But because of uh, the 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 uh, concerns about communism, communism in yeah. Cuba, that they decided to just go with Jersey City Jerseys. Now you mentioned the name Joe Cambria, and I told you when we were emailing back and forth that I was born in Washington, D.C. in 1952, and I've always owned these 1957 and 1958 Washington Senator yearbooks, and you probably couldn't pick two yearbooks with more Cuban faces in it in you know in a major league baseball team. What was Cambria's relationship with Clark Griffith like? Or uh, Calvin Clark, or Calvin Griffith. He was a scout down there in Cuba starting really and started signing players for uh, the Senators in the 1930s and you know by some accounts signed as many as uh, 3 to 400 Cuban players uh, wow. uh, for the Senators. Um, you know obviously a lot of them didn't make it um, throughout their minor league system but you know, in the in the forties and fifties, there were quite a few Cuban players that that made it up uh, to the Senators at various seasons. Now, was was were they viewed as by the industry of baseball and by Calvin Griffith? Were they viewed as cheap labor? Is that really all it was, or did they think they were really bettering the game by having Cuban players uh, become part of Major League Baseball? Well, there was no no question that they were. Uh, Cambria was signing players on the cheap quite quite a bit, uh, but you know they also because there was a the level of talent was was good in Cuba they got some really good players like I mentioned before, uh, you know uh, Pedro Ramos and and Camilo Pascual, uh, uh, Julio Becker was a pretty decent player sure. uh, as well. Uh, so was Zorio was Versailles was he a, a Cuban born? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, he was another one and. Uh, so you know they had players that uh, you know eventually uh, you know uh, and even they they took players with them when they moved to uh, Minnesota as well mm-hmm. that that were Cuban good Cuban players uh, T- uh, Tony Oliva Tony's yeah. one, Tony's one of my I think he's the the most deserving player that should be in baseball's Hall of Fame that, that is not right yeah. yeah I thought he was just absolutely amazing. We're talking, we're talking with Cesar Brioso, the author of a very interesting book, Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution, The End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. It's available through um, Amazon uh, and online. Just type it in and you'll be able to purchase it. Yep. Cesar, what I wanted to ask you was just the way the game changed in Cuba from the time Castro took control in 59 moving forward and you know obviously the restrictions and things of that nature but just how did that change the game down there well i mean you had the, you know like i said it was a professional uh, system down there right you had minor league baseball in the summer you had the cuban winter league long established uh, for the winter uh, so you had baseball year round now that uh, that didn't change you, baseball continued it just continued under a nationalized uh, system right uh, one of the things that happened you know the, the the Cuban League everything was really centralized in Havana even the Cuban League the four teams though they you know uh, nominally represented other other locations Cienfuegos, Marianao, uh all four teams played in that one stadium in in Havana um, so one of the things that happened when uh, Moving forward, uh, a- after the the cutoff, uh, pr- professionalism ended in Cuba. Um, 
they, they had provincial teams. Uh, so that each team had its own province, and players typically, I think, had to be from that province to play for that provincial team. And those provincial teams uh, were sort of the feeder league into the Cuban national team that we saw um, in international amateur competitions, the Olympics, uh, uh, the Amateur uh, World Series, I think it was called at the time, um, eventually uh, took the name World Cup. Uh, and then what we've seen uh, recently in uh, the World Baseball Classic in the Caribbean League. But uh, it's a totally nationalized, um, you know, so, uh, socialist uh, uh, brand of baseball. Uh, I think the, the, the salary, the, you know, the nominal salary they make is something like $50 a month, the equivalent of $50 a month. Um, you know, and then of course, just the cutoff. They were just not uh, permitted to leave. They were barred from leaving uh, to sort of pursue any sort of career here. Certainly, uh, in the majors, uh, you know, beginning in the '60s. Uh, so, just people here never really got a chance to see uh, potentially a lot of a lot of great players uh, in Cuba for for decades. And those teams that were owned by by Cuban businessmen such as Bobby Maduro and the other names are, that are mentioned in the book, those teams were just simply taken away from them, correct? Well, they just ceased to exist, they, really. Yeah. Um, right after the, the final season of the Cuban League was uh, 1960-61, uh, and with all the tensions going up back and forth between the two countries, uh, Ford Frick uh, banned um, American players from playing that season. Uh, so that season, it was an all all native rosters for the four teams for the first time in decades. All the the Cuban players, even the Cuban players in organized baseball and in the majors, were were uh, allowed to play. Um, but right after the but after the season ended, uh, I think like two weeks, uh, Cuba officially passed a law that that uh, ended professionalism, not just in baseball mm -hmm. but in all sports. All sports. Uh, yeah. It was probably going to be a fait accompli anyway that that would something like that would happen. And yeah, moving forward, it was uh, an uh, you know a not a not a professional uh, system like it had been for since uh, uh, 1878. And the players that were Cuban prior to Castro taking over that were already in Major League Baseball, such as Pedro Ramos, Julio Becker, and eventually Oliva and Tiant and those, they were they were not allowed to return home during off seasons. Correct. Well, the uh, for the 1960 season. Uh, when they were in, in Cuba trying to figure out what was going on, and at that point uh, the diplomatic relations between the two countries had ended, Cuba allowed them to leave, but there was no way to get visas to the United States because there was no longer an embassy, a consulate for, for, for doing that. So they ended up having to go through Mexico to then come uh, to the United States for spring training in 1960. Okay. Now at the end of that se season, that major league season, those players had a decision to make, either stay in the U.S. and potentially not be able to return to Cuba or come to Cuba and potentially not be able to continue pursuing their, their major league careers. Uh, and many of them uh, chose to stay here in the U.S. knowing what, uh, what might happen, that they might not be allowed to leave the, the, for the, the following season. And uh, Louis Tiant, uh, uh, he was uh, uh, playing in Mexico at the time. Actually, it was before he had signed a major league contract, and he was going to come back uh, and do his honeymoon in Cuba, but his his father told him, "Look, don't come back here. You may not be able to leave." Right. And he ended up playing uh, that winter, I think, in uh, I forget if it was uh, Nicaragua or or Puerto Rico, and then returned to playing in Mexico before eventually signing with uh, with Cleveland. It, it, uh, but yeah, the the they would not players who were here uh, were would not be able to return, and anybody who went back to Cuba, uh, sometimes it took years for them to be able to leave. Right, and, and I, I've talked to several players uh, up here 
throughout the time that I've covered baseball who talk about not being able, haven't seen their families Family in for tens of, yeah, yeah, 10, 20 years, that kind of thing. And that's, uh, that's pretty sad. Well, I mean, if you remember Louis Tion, he oh, yeah. wouldn't see his parents again until the 1975 World Series. Yep, right, exactly. Yeah. I, I worked with a sportscaster when I was at Radio Marti who was pretty much a legend, you know, down in Cuba, uh, Guillermo Portuondo Cala, and uh, Willie was what we called him, right. you know. Uh, and and Willie would would educate me about all these players and that time period uh, from – before Castro took over, and also, you know, at, you know, even even the baseball before that, and uh, he he would always. I mean, he was such good friends with Orlando Cepeda and and uh, and and Louis Tiant and uh, Perez, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Perez, and and it, it's amazing some of the stories that you hear about just that the fact that you know they they just became isolated. Yeah, it wasn't just the baseball players. It was yeah. uh, it was everybody. Everybody, yeah. yeah. Left Cuba in 1965, um, and slowly, surely, you know, most of our close family came here eventually. Uh, you know, throughout the 60s and early 70s, uh, but there were there were some family members that uh, stayed behind, and and you know, did we didn't get to see them. It's only been, I think, in recent uh, years that some of them have been able to come uh, to the U.S. either to live or or on visits. But yeah. The, uh, Families were separated for decades at times. If we had to put a number on the number of players in 1960 that made that decision not to stay in the U.S. but to go home to Cuba, are we talking about 150 names that might be on the top of our list of, uh, of Major League Baseball players that never ended up pursuing their careers because of, uh, because of the restrictions? You're talking about like during the uh, the early uh, '60s players yeah. that came over to the U.S. and then had that decision to make and decided to go home, knowing they were foregoing professional baseball careers. Boy, I, I don't know what the the number would be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think most of them. I mean, the large, the biggest names you remember are, are they pretty much decided to stay. I yeah. Think, uh, okay. You know, um, I think Sandy Amaros may have come back and, and got stuck there for a while. There's uh, a guy. Uh, you know, but I think the, the most of the guys who were playing decided to stay because they could see what was going on, uh, what and what might happen in the future. Uh, they made that sacrifice to potentially, you know, not see their families again. Now, who who knows how many players missed out on the chance to come yeah. here? You know, in the yeah. second half of the 20th sure. century. Uh, um, you know, that's that's a figure that's probably impossible to figure out, um, just because. You know, even though they they were talented and and got to play on on an international stage at an am, amateur level, um, you know they never got tested in you know yeah. in the minor leagues or and, and to see just how many of them might have made it to the majors. But I'm sure it, w- it would have been a, a significant number. Our guest is Cesar Brioso, the author of Last Seasons in Havana: The Castro Revolution, the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. I'm not trying to humanize Fidel Castro because we know what kind of a brutal dictator he was. Uh, Cesar, but I'm wondering baseball, and I don't think it was just he showed it off in photographs. He was very much in love with the game of baseball, and it meant so much to him. I know in his mind that this was a lot bigger than baseball. Uh, but did it hurt him? Did it pain him in any way to see the end of uh, professional baseball in Cuba? 
I mean, look, he was a, a, a big baseball fan, I think, but baseball also was a, a propaganda tool for yeah. him as well. Um, you know, certainly that was the case in the, in the uh, 1959, the Sugar Kings won the International League and faced off against the Minneapolis Mill- Millers, the champions of the American Association in the Junior World Series. And he attended each game uh, throughout the first pitch, uh, sometimes uh, arriving late and uh, you know, and use that that absolutely as uh, you know, sort of a propaganda tool for uh, the the regime as it was uh, uh, being built then. Uh, so, some of the, you know, did, did he love baseball? Yes. Was he was he outwardly was he angry when the uh, Sugar Kings uh, franchise was revoked and moved to uh, to Jersey City? Absolutely. Uh, but you know, he continued to use baseball as a propaganda tool. Uh, throughout the 20th century uh, in, in those uh, amateur competitions, in those uh, international competitions. Uh, so, you know, how much of it was his love for the game and how much of it was uh, uh, political and, and uh, opportunism? You know, uh, people can, can make that decision for themselves. We'll leave, we'll leave some of the politics out of it. Uh, let's fast forward to just recently. There was a, in the Obama administration, there was somewhat of a normalization of re- relations between Cuba and the United States, and it included uh, a pathway for players to go right from Cuba to play in the major leagues, sign with major league clubs. That policy has been turned aside by the Trump administration. How do you feel about that, Cesar? Well, yeah, like you, the, like you said, the, the Obama administration had given Major League Baseball uh, the clearance to go ahead and try to negotiate some kind of an arrangement with the Cuban Baseball Federation. And after three years of uh, negotiating in December, they announced that they would, um, you know, they had an agreement that uh, players, Cuban players who were 25 years old and had played six seasons would be allowed to uh, potentially sign with, with teams here. Uh, part of the reason for trying to get that deal done uh, uh, was the, the the fact that all these Cuban defectors had been using uh, smugglers and human traffickers yeah. to get out uh, out of Cuba and risking their lives by doing so. And, and Major League Baseball wanted to try and end uh, that practice, uh, um, along with you know the access to to the talent there. Um, and but now with with that uh, agreement being uh, revoked, uh, you know what we're going to see, I think, is the continuation of players trying to defect and players, because they're trying to defect, trying to get here, play in the majors, hiring, uh, continuing to hire smugglers and and human traffickers and, and risk their lives in that way. And uh, my, my concern is for those players. Yep. Uh, and, you know, what's going to, you know, the, at some point something really terrible is going to happen, um, given that situation. Um, and so that's my concern. Um, you know, we're, you know, Major League, the power brokers, Major League Baseball, the United States, Cuba, you know, they'll they'll continue on. But it's it's these players who are sort of caught in the middle who uh, want a chance to play at the highest level and, yes, make the money that potentially comes with that. Um, but now that they're going to continue defecting, um, there's also the, the question, you know, if the agreement had been allowed to go through, it would have been only the players with the best chance of playing that probably would have been signed. Sure. Uh, but now... You know, you're going to have guys who are who think they're good enough, but really aren't, and who knows what's going to happen to them. But one figure I saw in a, in a Reuters story was that something like 350 uh, Cuban players had defected since 2014, which seems like a staggering number. Yeah. Uh, especially when you consider, I think there were 17 Cuban-born players on the opening day rosters this season. Yeah. Uh, so sure, there's a lot more that are in the minors, but that number suggests that there's a lot more guys that are. 
uh, may be stuck in, in the third country where they establish residency, or maybe they reach the U.S. and who knows what they're doing. Um, so players are going to be risking their lives with really no guarantee of making it. Um, yeah, and it's that it's agreement would have would have at least uh, certainly dramatically reduced the use of smugglers, and I think would have uh, only the players with the best chance of actually making it would have, would have come here. Last question for you. The players today that we know of, Cespedes, who's with the Mets, Abreu with the White Sox and a couple others, and we have a young Cuban player, Yusniel Diaz, that we acquired in the Manny Machado trade is Cuban. Uh, are they allowed after the baseball seasons today to go back to Cuba and then come here, or is it still a risk for them to be, you know, we know Castro's not alive anymore, but is the system going to ensnare them where if they come home they run the risk of not being able to get back? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they can't just freely travel back and forth. That was the other thing that was going to be part of this agreement, that yeah. those players who, who signed um, uh, under the agreement that, that's now next, uh, they would have been able to go back and forth freely. Uh, you know, could they, could they make special trips? Uh, yes, that's possible. We saw that uh, back in, what was it, 2015. There was a goodwill tour, uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, went went to Cuba with uh, with uh, some players, and it included uh, some of the defectors. Uh, Yasiel Puig was one of them, and I remember thinking at the time that how that how shocked I was because those guys, uh, for years, the any player who defected was pretty much persona non grata as far as the Cuban government concerned. Uh, you know, labeled traitors. Uh, so for the, the the fact that they were able to go there as part of that goodwill tour with the Major League Baseball. That's when I started to think that there was a possibility of some kind of agreement uh, happening, uh, but now with with this deal nixed, uh, I, I think it becomes again very very difficult and poten- potentially dangerous for them to, to even try to go back, assuming they would even be granted uh, a visa to go, which which is by no means guaranteed. Cesar, many thanks for coming on, and uh, I'm looking forward to digging into uh, you know the last eighty percent of this book. Last seasons in Havana, the Castro Revolution, the end of professional baseball in Cuba. Cesar Briosa has been our guest. The book is a Nebraska Press book, and it's available if you go online. I'm sure you can buy it through Amazon or a myriad of other ways. Thank you, Cesar. Thank you. All right. There we have it. Uh, Cesar 